you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 10 and 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this good news of great joy that we are gathered to celebrate here today. Father, I pray that you would come and meet with your people through the preaching of the word, through the truth of scripture. As we meditate on what has taken place over 2,000 years ago, as we think of Christ coming into the world, God incarnate, Lord, I pray that you'd be working joy in our hearts as we think about these realities. Father, thank you. Thank you for the giving of your son. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the glory of these realities. May you be honored and worshiped in the preaching of the word today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. Merry Christmas. It is good to be back with you again. I almost don't even need to preach. That was wonderful. Man, we should have a choir a little more often, I think. Well, this morning I thought it would be good for us to take a break from our study of the Gospel of John to reflect on the implications of Christmas, the implications of the birth of our Savior, and the joy that that ought to bring to every believing heart. In our day, I think the, the need and the desire for true joy is becoming more and more palpable out in the world. And truly, we live in an age of, of anxiety, of, of pressures all around us, and a future that doesn't look all that bright for the world. This week I read an opinion piece on The Guardian, which is usually never good, that highlighted this sentiment. It was written by a journalist who was really lamenting the lack of joy in our world right now, especially given that it's Christmas time. And he started his piece with a, a statement that is truer than he realizes. He said this, he said, Christmas, most of us are brought up to believe, is all about joy. And that is absolutely correct. Christmas is all about joy. But then he makes it clear that for him, the source of that joy, what he is talking about, is just the, the mere activities of the holiday around the celebration, not the, the substance of the holiday itself, what we're actually celebrating. And for that reason, he goes on to say, he says, but joy feels as elusive as a tassie tiger right now. It is a unicorn, a needle in a haystack. I know I'm not at all alone when I say that this year, finding joy feels almost impossible. Now, I had to look up what a tassie tiger is. You know, for those of you who don't know, that's an extinct, striped, wolf-like animal that was native to Australia. 
but it is nowhere to be found today, much like his view of joy. He goes on in this article to justify his perspective by pointing to all the, the suffering in the world and the political movements that are happening, the, the endless bad news cycle, the wars, and, and even the fact that his children are now grown, which only illustrates to him that life is rapidly passing. All of which is true. The world seems to be growing darker. And to boot, we're heading into an election year, which is never good. And there's no telling what that will bring. Things do look bleak. Sadly, at the end of the article, he concludes that it would be nice to have religion in times like these to lean on, but that would be perverse since religion is what starts wars in the first place. And so, therefore, instead of joy, he will settle for just quiet contemplation this Christmas, whatever that means for him. His is a a sad and hopeless perspective indeed. But to be honest, from the perspective of someone who does not have Christ, someone who outright rejects Christ, I can't understand how they would have any other perspective than what he articulated. Honestly, this, this article was refreshingly honest from an unbeliever. I often say, and I often hear others say it, I don't know how people navigate this fallen world without Christ, without the light of the world. Because without the light of the world, there is nothing but darkness left. There is no hope. That is not the case for us who have Christ. For us, this kind of morose outlook on life cannot be the perspective of our hearts. This cannot be all that we see, and this cannot be our attitude towards the providential state of the world. There is no place for a Christian who carries on like a joyless Scrooge in life. If you see no cause for joy, no matter how bleak the world gets or how bleak your life circumstances are, if you have no cause for joy, then you have truly lost sight of the glory of what God has done for us in Christ, of the glory of what took place at Christmas. There's a reason that the the angel announced his birth the way he did. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus, in fact, came for our joy. And everything he has done And everything he is doing now and everything he will do is working toward that end. And I want us to see that afresh today on this Christmas Eve. I want us to be reminded why the announcement of his arrival was and is good news of great joy for us. And I want us to go about this in a kind of Charles Dickens style today. By looking at the past, at the present, and at the future. I want us to look at how our joy is fueled by what Christ has done in the past, by what He is doing in our lives present, and by what He will do in the future. And as we explore this this topic, you need to keep in mind that this is not an option for you if you profess Christ. Joy is is not only the fruit of being a believer, 
but it is commanded to the believer. And this, is, this is why the Apostle Paul admonishes the churches, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Or in another place, he says rejoice at all times. No exceptions. So this isn't, this isn't an option. It's not about how you feel at any given time. It's about rightly responding to what God has done. And therefore, we are not to approach joy with, with passivity. We are actually to pursue it. We are to go after it. And the truth is, if you believe the gospel and your hope is in Christ, this, this should not be hard. We have more cause for joy than anyone in the world. And I hope we see that again here today. So let's explore this by first looking to the past. Looking at what's taken place in the past. In the book of Galatians, Paul tells us that it was at the fullness of time that, that had come that God sent forth His Son into the world. Meaning, His plan was not arbitrary. All of history had been building toward that moment by God's design. And when you look at the full scope of history, I don't think there is any real way for us to truly grasp the privilege that we have been given to be born in the time in which we live. Because we are time-bound creatures and culture-bound creatures, we often struggle to get a perspective on all kinds of things outside of, of just what we know. You know, we can read about how things were different in times gone by, but it's really hard for us to know what it was like when we don't live it out, when there's a completely different reality in a different culture or a different time. I mean, just, just take, for example, the things we take on a daily, for granted on a daily basis, things that we have common access to that have had profound advancements on human life. The invention of electricity, for example, or the light bulb, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine a world that just goes completely black when the sun goes down. No lamps, no street lights, no headlights, no porch lights, no flashlights. That's it. Until very recently in history, if you wanted to see at night, you had to use candlelight or a fuel-burning lantern or torch. Or how about heating and cooling? I think if we had the ability to travel back in time, this is the thing we would probably whine about the most. I mean, we complain when the thermostat is off just a few degrees to our preference. But, but past generations couldn't even dream of controlling indoor climate. Or how about running water, hot water at that? Or toilets? It was not that long ago that outhouses and chamber pots were all you had. If you don't know what a chamber pot is, you can look that up later. <laughs> and then you can thank God for your toilet. <laughs> and we could, keep, we could keep going. We could think about the ease of communication or, or transportation or medical access or access to food. Just think of the grocery store. On and on this goes. All of this we take for granted on, on a daily basis in our culture without much thought of, of the grandness of this reality because of the time and the culture in which we live. Well, there is a time-bound reality that is greater than all of these things put together. Something that we as believers take for granted 
almost always, that far outweighs every human achievement that we enjoy. And that is the fact that we live on this side of the first advent. The fact that we live after the first coming of Christ, the first Christmas. Truly, we take that for granted. And I I don't even think we can begin to conceptualize the infinite blessing that that is in this fallen world. If, I think sometimes we lose sight of this because when we read our Old Testament and we read about Noah and Abraham and, and Moses and Ruth and David and Daniel and Isaiah and many others, we read about all of these amazing people who walked with God. We kind of assume that their time was similar to ours with a bunch of people who, who know God but just under a different covenant. But that is, that is not the case. After the fall of Adam, when humanity chose to turn its back on its creator, the world was plunged into utter and complete darkness due to our sin. And in humanity's sin, almost nobody knew and served the living God. I mean, just think about the time leading up to the flood. It's, it's easy to miss how much time passed between Adam and Noah and not realize how many people were on the earth at that time. But that was a little over 1,600 years in just the first six chapters of Genesis. To give you perspective on that, that is longer than the time between the Exodus and the arrival of Christ. Basically, the whole rest of the Old Testament is a shorter encapsulation of time than the first six chapters of Genesis. It's a long time. And when scholars look at the pre-flood era, and they're calculating what the expected birth rate was and what the average length of life was at that time, they lived much longer than we do, conservative estimates put the world population at the time of the flood at about four billion people. Those are the conservative estimates. Most estimate it was much, much higher than that. Man had truly filled the earth. And as we know from Genesis 6, 5, man had filled the earth with wickedness, with sin. God looked down upon his creation and saw that the thought of man was only evil continually. And out of billions of people at the time, one man found favor with God. One man knew God, and he and his family, eight people in total, made it through the judgment that flooded the earth. That's perspective. Fast forward about 400 years, and once again, the the earth has been repopulated to a degree. And again, God looks down upon one man, Abraham, to make a covenantal relationship with him and his promised lineage. And from his promised line, the line of Isaac, and then to Jacob, comes the chosen nation of Israel. Every other nation in the whole earth is left in darkness for millennia, alienated from God in their own sin, under the power of Satan, with no access to the truth of who he is. For nearly 2,000 years, only one nation, the nation of Israel, had that access. And their story dominates the Old Testament. 
But if you know your Bible, you know that even with this one chosen nation to whom God had revealed himself and made covenant, very few of them actually knew God and clung to his promises. In fact, there was only two eras that it may have been true where the majority did serve God, and that would have been under Joshua's leadership and under David's rule. But the rest of this history of the one chosen nation is a history of a people who had turned their back on the God who had made them and chosen them. Now, certainly, God always had a remnant. As as He told Elijah, when Elijah thought he was the only one left serving the living God, God told him, no, I have kept 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. God always had a remnant. But again, Think about that. Yes, Elijah was not alone. But of the entire population of the whole earth, at that time, 7,000 people knew God. That's that's 30% less than the population of Smithville. The whole earth. The world existed in darkness. In the grip of Satan. Because of human sin not knowing God, and without hope of redemption. And even the few who did know Him, they knew Him in veiled realities. They were holding on to promises of the future, knowing that the the fullness of His salvation that they were clinging to in the time in which God would visit His people was a future reality that they would not see in their lives and did not yet understand. Listen now, Peter speaks about this when talking about the, the salvation that we now enjoy through Jesus Christ. He, he says this, 1 Peter chapter 1, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. You see, the prophets indeed did speak of the coming Savior. Passages that we, we love and, and we quote around Christmas time. Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Or Micah 5, 2, For you shall come forth from me, Bethlehem, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. They spoke of the coming Savior that they did not understand. And they also spoke of the coming salvation that they did not understand. That He would bring salvation and He would bring joy as a result of this salvation. Listen to Isaiah 61, what Isaiah said. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That was not a present reality for him. He's speaking of something that he has not seen or experienced. Or Psalm 118, the psalmist said, I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's Christ. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He's singing of these realities, but he knows not what they actually look like. And we could go on and on with these prophecies given to them by the Spirit of Christ. They wrote of these beautiful coming realities, but they had no idea how it all come to be. For them, it was just a vague, distant idea, a flickering light of hope in the future. They knew not the fullness of their own words because they were, they were serving us, not themselves. But they longed to know who and when it would be as they looked for this great salvation. And as Peter says, this is things for which even the angels have longed to look. Even the angels had been watching and wondering, how is God going to do this? How will He deliver sinful humanity? Not even the angels could fully see what God was going to do until the fullness of time had come. The plan was, was, was too marvelous for even the angelic imagination that God Himself would come down and would take on flesh, would be born in the weakness of human frailty in order that He could suffer the punishment of death on behalf of His people and ransom for Himself guilty sinners in order to make a people for His own possession. Can you imagine even trying to fabricate a more glorious salvation than that? You couldn't do it. This was the mystery hidden for ages, as Paul speaks of in Colossians, until the fullness of time had come. It means 4,000 years, hundreds of prophecies were all building up to this moment when the mystery of Christ would finally be revealed to the world, when light would finally dawn on this dark world. It's no wonder that when the angel of the Lord comes to announce the birth of Christ, he describes it as he does, as good news of great joy for all the people. This was not just good news of great joy for the Jewish shepherds who received that message. It was for all the people. Not just the nation of Israel, but every nation from this point on. History has now changed. Light has come. And because of the time in which we live, we now get to look back and see with clarity what the prophets even could not see. What God had been planning from ages past. And we live in the light of His having already come. It is a remarkable privilege. I mean, think about it. The majority of time, the majority of the history of the world existed prior to the first advent, prior to the coming of the Savior. To live and when we do is a profound gift for which we ought to have great joy. That announcement from the angels is for us. We have a clear view of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ and what He has done to save guilty sinners. 
That alone, no matter what is going on in the world, ought to tell you that it's an incredible time to be alive because of what we get to see in Christ, because of what he has done in history. But the profound blessing is not just a relic of ancient history. What Christ has accomplished in the past is at work in the present to bring joy to those who believe, to those who receive it. The realities of Christmas past utterly transform everything about the lives of those who embrace it in the present. You see, no longer do we live as the world does, groping around in the darkness, longing to find meaning and purpose for our lives, trying to find anything that will give us a fleeting and cheap sensation or imitation of true joy in order to to satisfy empty hearts. Now, for the believer, for the Christian who who has received Christ, we have found the longing of our souls. And in that, we have a joy that cannot be taken. Now, for clarity, when I say joy, it's important to understand what I mean by that. It's important to understand what the Bible means by that. Because I think we often have a tendency to misunderstand what true joy is, especially when we're judging other people. Because we're, we're very prone to judge by outward appearances. And when we think of someone joyful, we have a tendency to attribute that to a certain personality type. We meet someone who seems unusually lighthearted, who is not too serious, who perhaps knows how to engage people, someone who smiles a lot and is very good at showing interest in others. They know how to ask good questions and to keep a conversation going. And perhaps they even know how to make everyone laugh and consider it a, insert a, a well-timed and appropriate joke here and there. It's just someone everyone enjoys being around. We go away from someone like that and we think, man, that was a joyful person. When in reality... They might be somebody who just memorized Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It might have absolutely nothing to do with true inward joy. In fact, sadly, history and studies have ironically shown that some of the most depressed celebrities have been the comedians. Robin Williams comes to mind. The funniest and most engaging personalities on the outside can often be dying on the inside. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who is jovial in their personality is, is truly depressed. Not at all. That's the, the, the point is you just do not know by judging an outward appearance. So when we think of true joy, we're not thinking of, of personality types or even a mood at all. Some of the most joyful people can be those who are very quiet and very contemplative. And I get the the, the distinct impression that's a very fair description of Mary, the mother of Christ, who was full of joy. Because true joy, everlasting joy, is not slapstick lightheartedness. It is the satisfaction of the soul. It is a disposition of the heart. And it is only found when the soul finds what it is created for. True joy is an abiding and unshakable satisfaction of the soul. And everybody longs for it. Everybody longs for that. The whole world is chasing after it. 
chasing after a satisfaction that will last. But rather than turn to Christ, the fallen human heart, by default, turns to every kind of idolatry under the sun to try to obtain it. But it can only be found in Christ by design because we were created for Him. We were made for Him. And that is ultimately what salvation is at its core, fundamentally. And when we think of salvation, the work of our Savior, we immediately think of the forgiveness of sins. And we should, right? I mean, Christ came for this purpose. As the angel Gabriel told, jo- told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When Jesus died for our sins, they were, they were put away forever. For those who trust in Christ, every sin you have ever committed or will ever commit has already been paid for. It's done. It's removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Hallelujah. There are a few things more joyful to think about than the fact that we are forgiven people. However, that was not the end purpose of our salvation. That was the barrier that must be dealt with in order to get us to the ultimate purpose, which is God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, man's chief end, I mean man's final purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what we are created for. We're created to know Him. We're created to glorify Him. And we were created to enjoy Him. And God has made that possible. And He has made Himself known through the person of Jesus Christ. He is our soul's delight. Christ is. You see, this is is why it cannot be said that Christianity is just about rule-keeping in legalism. Often that's how outsiders perceive it. And sadly, that's how many insiders and many denominations understand it and portray it. But both are wrong. Both have missed the point. Christianity, at its core, is about delight. It is about joy in God. It is about satisfaction in knowing God. The reason our lives change when we come to know Christ and we put away sin is not because all of a sudden we become really good legalists. It's because our eyes have been opened to see the beauty of the Savior and in the transformation of our hearts, our delights have changed. Our delight in Him and in becoming like Him outweighs anything that this world has to offer. The truly redeemed heart loathes the idea of running back to the barrier between him and God, which is sin, because of the joy that we have in Christ. It's about joy. In fact, Jesus made this very point in Matthew chapter 13. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered up, 
Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. This man gave up everything with joy, without even a second thought. No looking back, no buyer's remorse, no regret. Why? Because the joy in the discovered treasure was greater than everything else. There's not even a comparison. And that treasure is Christ. God sent that treasure into the world at Christmas. And those who receive Him, those who truly discover that treasure, do so in joy. And their lives are transformed for eternity. There's no begrudging compliance here. It's not drudgery. It's joy. The Christian life is joy. And the good news is always Always truly received with great joy. Because that's what Christianity is. Now that doesn't mean that we will not face sorrow in this world. We will. We've been seeing that aplenty from the Gospel of John. But like the Apostle Paul, because of Christ, we can be those who are, yes, sorrowful at what's happening, but always rejoicing. Because of Christ. Because the sorrows of this world cannot and will not take away the everlasting joy that we have in Him. As Romans 8 says, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because of that, at the present, at the present time, we have more cause for joy than anyone in the world. So not only do we have joy over what Christ has done in Christmas past, which has worked everlasting joy into our lives at present, but lastly, because of Christ, we also have a future that is nothing but joy. You see, for for most of the world, the future is the great unknown. I mean, we all naturally have some vague idea of how tomorrow will likely go, and usually we are right. Everyone gets in the routine of life and has experienced enough of the mundane sameness to know that there's a good chance tomorrow will look like it did today. But at the same time, we all know that tomorrow is not a guarantee, and life often surprises us. We are all going into the new year without a clue as to what will transpire in the world on a global scale, or at a national level, or in our church, or in our personal lives. Everyone is walking through life one day at a time. And no matter how powerful or how influential or how wealthy some may be or think themselves to be, no one can control the future. And no one truly knows what tomorrow holds. Except for the believer. Except for the believer. Now, obviously, we don't know all the details of the future, nor can we control the future, but we know for sure where all of this is ultimately going. And it is heading towards our ultimate joy, the fullness of joy, joy and nothing but joy upon the return of Christ, our blessed hope. 
You see, for the believer, we are not just looking back at Christmas. What happened at Christmas in the past teaches us and trains us to look forward to His second coming, His final advent. We are are looking to the return of our great Savior, knowing that it is coming. Listen how Paul ties these these two things together in in Titus chapter 2. He said this, he said, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, Christmas, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, those who, who trust in the first advent live for the second, when we will finally see Him face to face, and we will be made like him in the fullness of joy. One of the most treasured Christmas carols of all time, of which we are going to sing here in just a minute, is Joy to the World. Everyone knows it, and we all love to sing it every year. Some of you are wondering why we hadn't sang it yet. We're going to. It was written by one of history's most prolific hymn writers, Isaac Watts. Well, what many people don't know is that Watts did not write this to be a Christmas carol, nor did he even write it about the first coming of Christ. What he did do was write a poem adapted from the truths of Psalm 98 to speak of the joy that would come at the second coming of Christ when he comes to reign over the earth as the rightful king of creation. Because remember, when Christ returns, He returns to make all things right. That means not only will it be the consummation of our salvation when we will be made like Him, but also it is the time in which the whole earth will be redeemed, will be made new. As the Scripture says, all things will be summed up in Christ. It is then that the the curse over all of creation is no more. Not just over humanity, but over creation, which is currently groaning and awaiting that great and glorious day of final redemption. And Psalm 98 is pointing to that end, when not just the redeemed people, but all of creation rejoices and sings at His coming. Listen again to verses 4 through 9. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. What a joyful day that will be for those who have loved His appearing. You may think, well, wait a minute. It says He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. Well, yes, He is. And you will stand before Him in judgment. And for those who have trusted in what He has done in His first coming, you can look forward to His second coming 
because you will be among those who hear what Jesus said in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. See, joy to the world is no exaggeration because it is a new world where there is no sorrow or pain or loss or sin or death. Only joy and everlasting and ever-increasing joy in Christ throughout all of creation. That is our future. We know this. It is guaranteed because God is faithful and He has promised. And He who is faithful will surely do it. And the thing that has made this possible is Christmas. This is coming. Brothers and sisters, this Christmas, don't fall into the world's perspective that joy is elusive as a tassy tiger or a needle in a haystack. For the Christian, that outlook would not only be wrong, but it would be sinful. If you are struggling with joy, you have likely lost sight of everything that has been given to you in Christ. And you've got to fight for it. You have got to fight for your joy. It is a command and a responsibility to every believer for a reason. You are to pursue your joy in Christ. That means you are to think deeply on what, has, what God has done. That you are to stay in His Word. That you are to commune with Him. That you are to seek Him in prayer. And that you are to leverage the access that Christ has won for us. As the Bible says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Joy is yours for the taking in Christ. Delight in Him. Enjoy Him. He is yours and you are His. And there's no greater reality than that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what joy we have in Christ. What joy we have in your Son. How great is our salvation. Thank you that you have dealt with our sin that we may know you and delight in you and cherish you and pursue you all the days of our lives. God, I pray that you'd give us the grace that we need to do that not just for tomorrow on Christmas Day, but for every day hereforth, that we would pursue Christ and that our affections for Him would stir up the joy that You have given us through Your Son. God, thank You for Christmas. Thank You for Your Son. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.